The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. So everyone, I'm really excited to host this today with, with Scott um, on Capital Markets, and hopefully we're going to make this more of a, of a regular program. But uh, our guest here today is Henry Fernandez, who's the chairman and CEO of MSCI. And oftentimes when I meet an entrepreneur and I'm asked, what is the world's best business model? I say MSCI. Um, without explaining MSCI's business model, I figured I'd hand it over to Henry to introduce himself and talk a little bit about the history of MSCI because it's a really, really interesting history. It's probably one of the most successful spinouts of all time. It was formerly part of Morgan Stanley, but even before that has a very interesting past in, in history. So Henry, it would be great if you can just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about uh, MSCI from, from 1968 to the present. Thank you. And uh, thanks for having me. Uh... So uh, MSCI uh, is really a story about uh, entrepreneurship, about uh, you know my own personal interests, and and about uh, the, a, a role that we play in the investment uh, industry. So uh, so I uh, you know I I grew up uh, in Central America, came to the U.S. Uh, to go to college uh, at Georgetown, where I studied uh, economics and. Um, and foreign policy, uh, so which was a passion of mine. Uh, you know, foreign policy and international relations uh, uh, was a passion of mine. And uh, and as you, you can imagine, uh, you know, Georgetown was a great place uh, to be. Then uh, then I continued on to uh, to try to be an economist at uh, at Princeton, uh, where I was enrolled in a PhD program in economics. Um, but I got intrigued about business and uh, took a leave of absence and, um, and went to the uh, to the valley to uh, to Stanford Business School, uh, where eventually I discovered Wall Street and uh, decided to uh, to pursue a career there. Um, and uh, and you know my plan uh, at the time was uh, like a lot of people graduating from uh, from Stanford Business School was uh, to be an entrepreneur uh, but I wanted to first learn how to work how to how to do business in America which I had never worked in America uh, before so I joined Morgan Stanley in, um, in investment banking in New York uh, and uh, I promised myself that within five years I will find a business uh, to create and uh, literally you know five years later, uh, there was a large uh, bank, uh, savings and loan, actually, uh, in New York's uh, state, which I tried to take over for the the last the, for the ensuing three years, and it didn't work out. So I eventually uh, left Morgan Stanley to set up a private equity firm, uh, what I, I would call a NAFTA private equity firm. We were buying companies in uh, both the U.S. and Mexico. And uh, but we couldn't really scale it uh, uh, that much. And at the time, the then chairman and CEO Morgan Stanley, uh, uh, a person by the name of John Mack, uh, tracked me down and said, "You got to come back to uh, to Morgan Stanley," which I did. And um, you know, I, but very soon I realized that I was more of a entrepreneurial spirit uh, person than not. 
So, uh, but then I decided that, you know, entrepreneurship was also a way to, uh, to express my own views. And I found this uh, cost center at uh, Morgan Stanley called Morgan Stanley Capital International. Um, and I, uh, I went into that uh, full time, uh, moved to Geneva, Switzerland, where the headquarters of the, of the business was, um, you know, started growing it. And, uh, and then, you know, we took it public in uh, 2007. And the rationale was that we needed capital uh, to, uh, to do acquisitions. And Morgan Stanley didn't want to give us capital because it wanted to reserve its capital for its own trading uh, businesses. So, um, so we separated. And, uh, and there were two partners uh, at the time uh, of the business, Morgan Stanley and, and Capital Group of Los Angeles. That's where the CI you know, come from. So, uh, so we took a company public uh, uh, in November 2007, and we separated uh, from Morgan Stanley and, and from the Capital Group, and it became uh, an, an independent company, you know, publicly traded in the New York Stock Exchange. Um, hey, hey, Henry. Yes. Can I, uh, can I ask you a question? Actually, first of all, that's really—I I didn't realize that's where the MSCI comes from. That's helpful. That's really interesting history. What was what was the business at that time? Was it primarily the index business, or were there other business lines at the time you spun it out? Yeah. So, so what happened was uh, we were able to do one acquisition uh, when we were inside Morgan Stanley, and that was Barra, uh, a uh, basically an equity portfolio analytics company. Uh, based in uh, uh, in Berkeley, uh, and you know Berkeley, Berkeley in the Bay Area, and um, and that was uh, Barra was a publicly traded company. So we bought the company, took it private, and merged it uh, with MSCI, and uh, and that was uh, what the what the business was. It was equity indices, which were uh, the origin uh, market cap equity indices, which we'll come back to. Uh, and then equity portfolio risk or equity portfolio analytics, which was the Barra part. And the rationale was for every equity investment, you got risk and return. So the return or the performance was uh, the business of, of the former MSCI at that point, you know, the equity indices. And the business of risk uh, in portfolio was the Barra business. So we merged it, and that's what we what we uh, had, you know, when we went public. Subsequent to that, we made other acquisitions, but that was the um, the uh, the origin of that uh, of the business at the time we uh, we did the IPO. That's great. Thank you, Scott. And, and Henry, maybe we could talk about because Scott asked the question about indices. I mean, how does an index get constructed? I, I think a lot of people don't understand this. So let's take the MSCI World Index, which I know many, many funds benchmark themselves against. How and why does it work? And, and even like, what is the upper limit of indices that can be created? You could imagine thousands of different indices, but maybe let's start off with, with the world index and like, how is it constructed? Uh, what are the inputs to that? I mean, just what is the, you know, you think about the sausage factory, the sausage that you make is an index in many cases, like how is it constructed? So, so an index, uh, you know, it's uh, a measurement of a market, uh, or a part of the market. If you take uh, the Dow Jones index, it's only 30 stocks. If you take this S&P 500, it's 500 stocks in the U.S. market. If you take, uh, you know, the Russell 3000, it, it will be the, 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 uh, the largest 1,000 company plus the other 2,000 smaller companies. So, 
you know, there is, it's very hard to think of a, of a market when, you, when somebody asks you, what did the U.S. market do today? Uh, you, uh, you don't know what the market did today. What you will know is what the S&P 500 did in the U.S. market, uh, for example, or, or the Dow Jones or, or the Russell 1000 or the small cap index, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Russell 2000. That will be in, in the U.S. market. So what MSCI is, is, uh, is the equivalent of that, but across pretty much every market in the world. And, and therefore, what we do is we measure the performance of uh, every meaningful country in the world, uh, you know, it's about 50 countries, you know, that we that, that are part of the developed and emerging markets. But on top of that, there is the frontier markets, uh, which are beyond the emerging markets. And so we follow some maybe 70, 80 countries and we measure their performance. And what what measuring the performance is, is you take all the securities in a particular country, let's say Japan, uh, and uh, you only apply an investability filter to it, meaning that uh, that uh, that you are going to look at every company uh, in that market, and you are going to disregard disregard only the companies that are, you know, micro companies that people cannot really invest in. Or you're gonna not, you know, include the float. There may be certain companies that are state-owned, for example, in which only five percent of the company trades, and the other ninety-five percent is owned by the by the government. But that's not free to trade. You cannot buy or sell. So we take that out of the equation. So you know, we only look at the measure, uh, the value of the five percent in the case of a of a float issue. Uh, there are a lot of countries uh, that have foreign investment uh, uh, ownership limits that uh, foreigners cannot buy more, let's say, than 20% of a company or 30% of a company. So the, so therefore, the other 80% or the other 70% is not investable for foreign investors. So you take that out. So anyhow, so there is a lot of investability filters that we apply. But other than that, you know, that, that, is, that is it. Uh, and it measures the opportunity set of an international investor uh, investing in any one of those 50 countries. And then we aggregate those 50 countries in a variety of different ways. You know, there are global composites like MSCI Emerging Markets or MSCI World. So World is basically the developed markets, you know, of, of the globe, you know. And, uh, and when you add the developed markets plus the emerging markets, then that's what you get to what we call the old country world. And the terminology is, since we started measuring the, the uh, developed market at the beginning, going back many years, uh, decades, I should say, you know, that was the, the, the name world was taken. So we, in order to incorporate the emerging markets, we had to come up with a new name and we call it the old country world. <laughs> so those are, those are the way that, that we, we structure this. But these are market capitalization, meaning... The, uh, we take the, the number of securities only with a, a filter of float, uh, I'm sorry, only with a filter of investability, and then multiply by price. And, and that, what's, that gives you the value of that one company, and you aggregate all the companies in the country, and then you aggregate them in a variety of different ways. Right. And Henry, um, maybe just given... You know, for those of people, obviously, who are in the asset allocator business, obviously, you know, in, indices like MSCI World are incredibly central to their business, right? Because at the end of the day, 
often those serve as benchmarks for performance uh, that they're trying to build their portfolios around. And so I'm curious, uh, particularly now where you've got, you know, new technologies and new things changing, how do you think about making sure that, you know, MSCI World, for example, is always representative of what the investable universe is? Because obviously if you've got, you know, if you've got a return profile there that's different from what, you know, kind of an endowment or foundation is trying to hit, that certainly impacts how they may think about their own asset allocation. So I'm just curious, what's the, you know, once you kind of set the index up, you know, how, how often do you have to review it? Uh, and then, you know, what I'd love to segue into after that is, okay, how do you as a business ultimately get paid for the centrality of MSCI world and other indices, you know, in the asset allocator world? Yeah, so the, the first business uh, decision that you have to make or that we made at MSCI is that we view uh, indices as, uh, as a key part of the uh, global investment uh, process. Therefore, there are tools. These are tools to understand uh, the performance of portfolios. These are not just indicators that you want to use for media purposes or publicity purposes. These are they, they have to play a central role in, in the uh, in the global investment process. Um, and and that is very, you know that is sometimes different than our competitors. You know, we we focus on indices, you know, that are going to be helpful to running money, you know, around the world. So on, on the uh, market cap indices uh, that measure the performance of, of markets, uh, these are live organisms, so to speak, right? We spend an incredible amount of time every single day uh, about uh, following uh, the company. In our database, we follow more than 20,000 companies in the world. The, the biggest index that is uh, institutionally investable is the uh, All Country World uh, Investable Market Index that is developed an emerging market, as I said before, uh, and it is uh, mid-cap, large-cap, and small-cap, uh, and small-cap, you know, all over the world, including emerging markets. So that index has about 9,000 companies in it. So every single day, we got to be focused on what happens to those 9,000 companies. Some of them merge, some of them go bankrupt, you know, some of them, you know, have uh, rights issuance, uh, you know, they do new equity offerings and the like. So you got to look at every one of those 9,000 companies every day, you know, to ensure that any kind of corporate event that takes place, it's incorporated, you know, in the, uh, in the indices at some point. Uh, and then you got to obviously check their prices that are, you know, generated from exchanges around the world to make sure that the prices are correct, that there is no uh, typos or there is no problems to ensure the, uh, the accuracy of those indices. So those indices are, are used, uh, you know, uh, as I said before, nobody knows what the market is. What people will know is what the MSCI All Country World Index did, ACWI or the World Index or the Emerging Market Index. So, and that is the, the total universe of investable equity, public equity securities in the whole world. So, uh, so the Acqui IMI, 9,000 companies, represents 98% of the market cap of the world. So therefore, when you're a global you know, uh, asset allocator, like a pension plan or an endowment or foundation, your benchmark to understand how your portfolio did globally, 
whether it's developed, emerging, a small, large cap, mid cap, is the Acqui-IMI, you know, index, you know, because we, you want to have a benchmark that incorporates every single part of the opportunity set, and then your active decisions as to whether you didn't want to be in emerging market, for example, or you wanted to overweight, you know, uh, you know, Japan or overweight Europe or whatever, they need to be measured against what the markets did. And therefore, they become very central to the uh, to the understanding of the performance of portfolios. Right. So, so once an index is constructed, I mean, maybe walk us through how you get paid, because I kind of think of the, the universe twofold. You know, some funds market themselves as one of your indices, right? You know, BlackRock has an iShares MSCI World Fund that you can just buy. And then a lot of other asset managers market themselves as beating your indices, where that data, of course, comes from you. So, you know, maybe just kind of walk through your business model of how you get paid. And, you know, and I, I think the most amazing thing is that you often get paid on, on AUM, you know, versus a flat subscription. So maybe just kind of walk through how the business model works and how it came to be in this particular way. Yeah. So let me mention, uh, if you don't mind, uh, something uh, right before that, and then I'll, I'll jump into that. It, so the... The, about uh, about eighty to eighty five percent of the index revenues of MSCI currently come from from uh, from the market cap indices, uh, which I'm going to describe. You know how we get paid in a in a minute. Uh, another fifteen to twenty percent of the revenues are are and that's a growing pie is coming from, you could think of them as non-market cap or, or better yet, investment thesis indices, which deviate from what I would call general equilibrium of supply and demand, uh, and that they have a bias, they have an investment bias to them. Uh, and, uh, and those are ESG you know, indices, climate indices, Factor indices, some people call that smart beta, but let's say a, a momentum index, you know, a minimum volatility uh, index or a high quality stock index and, and things like that. And uh, or, or it could be a mega trend or thematic indices, all the companies in the world that are involved in disruptive technologies, you know, the companies in the world that are engaged in the supply of biotech, you know. Uh, or clean energy, or the like. So, so uh, you know, so the vast majority of our new product development effort today is going in the direction of the investment thesis indices. Uh, you know, and we continue to spend a great deal of time on the market cap indices in order to maintain them and grow them. But that's uh, that's a, a, a direction of travel in terms of these indices. Um, in terms, of, and, and the reason is because. You know, for every investor has a portfolio, and every portfolio needs some kind of index, either the an index of the opportunity set to understand your active decisions uh, that you may, or uh, or or, uh, or an index that captures much more the universe of uh, of the investment objectives, as you said, better the investment objectives of you're trying to achieve, and those are the investment thesis, you know, indices. So going back to how we get paid. There really are three legs to this tool, you know, of every uh, of every index, uh, like a company like ourselves. You get paid uh, uh, for active management, meaning you know, a uh, somebody who's going to overweight or underweight securities 
in a portfolio relative to the index. And, and that is typically a, a subscription, just like a subscription to a, you know, to a, let's say to a, a, a media publication or whatever you get paid. So, so uh, you know, we get paid annually uh, fees for, uh, for subscriptions and with, uh, with uh, price increases every year. And, and that is for uh, what is called active managers to, this, to, uh, to look at the underlying index, which is the market, and decide what do they overweight or underweight and try to beat the index. So that's one part. The second part of how we get paid uh, is, uh, is, is indices that become the actual portfolio. Uh, that's called indexed management or passive management. And that is, uh, you know, they replicate exactly what the index is so that basically, you know, an investor uh, in those uh, vehicles gets the beta, the beta of the of the market, and uh, in that in that part, we get paid uh, uh, fees of assets under management. So whatever the manager's uh, 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 fees are, we we get paid a small part of that management fee for the provision of the index, which actually is the portfolio. Uh, and that is, uh, for example, when you look at the exchange traded funds, you know, that's where you see MSCI, you know, as part, uh, like, as you know, the vast majority of equity exchange traded funds are passively managed or indexed management uh, of those uh, funds. That's the number two leg, you know, we, that's uh, fees of assets under management rather than uh, sort of subscription fees um, on, a, on, a, on a fixed dollar basis in, in the active management part. The third leg that we get paid is uh, when these uh, indices become, um, you know, uh, parts of underlines of a derivative instrument. It could be a listed option or a listed futures uh, or it could be a structured product. So, uh, so in the case of a listed futures, uh, uh, listed meaning an exchange and a derivative exchange or options listed in, a, in an options exchange, we get paid transaction fees because that's how the exchange gets paid. You know, it's a little bit of a toll machine. So we get paid, let's say, 15 cents a contract, you know, each way, or 12 cents a contract or something like that. Uh, those are transaction fees. So there are listed uh, futures and options in, uh, in the MSCI Emerging Market Index in an older index called IFA, which it was, it was the world, but ex-US and Canada for historical reasons and the like. So those are the three legs. Uh, at the moment, the, the, the larger part of the uh, business right now is still in active management fees. That would be say in the order of 60%, 55, 60% of our revenues. The passive fees, meaning act, uh, assets under management fees will be in the order of 30 plus percent. And then the futures and options are, say, in the order of about uh, five to seven percent at the moment. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, this is what I find so fascinating about your business is that I think of it as an arbiter of truth. I mean, everybody agrees that your index is the index and they they measure themselves against it. Because if Scott and I came up with an Alex and Scott brick index, Nobody would measure themselves against it. We couldn't go compete with you. So it kind of leads to my question of like, how do you think about competition and maybe why hasn't there been an open source index, if you will? 
because anybody can come up with an index, but unless people believe in the index and unless it becomes the universal point of truth, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, so, so the, uh, you know, what we do is not highly proprietary. You know, everyone can go out and get the securities and, and the prices and, you know, create, a, create an index. What, what is very different is that we at MSCI have worked really hard to, uh, to, be, to establish standards of communication, of language uh, between uh, an asset allocator, like a pension plan, uh, and an asset manager, uh, in which uh, it, it is embedded in their contract. As you said earlier in the call, uh, the asset manager gives a, uh, a, uh, an amount of money the asset, the asset owner or the asset locator gives an, an, an amount of money to the asset manager, let's say 500 million to run a portfolio around the world. And they say, your benchmark is going to be uh, uh, MSCI. And it's, if it's an actively managed uh, portfolio, uh, they, uh, they put certain bands as, as to which, you know, is acceptable at performance or an unacceptable underperformance uh, of the portfolio. So that's a, a standard. That's a language. Uh, uh, or communication between uh, two parties in a con- in a contractual sense. So we work very hard to achieve that. We definitely have achieved that in the market cap indices around the world, uh, and now we're we're pushing hard to to establish a language of standards in the uh, in the investment thesis indices or the non market cap indices, so that we can you know do that. That now the other thing that is very important is quality and accuracy. The uh, there is you know at MSCI there probably are somewhere between fourteen to fifteen trillion dollars of money following uh, the uh, the MSCI indices. That's trillion with a T as in Tom, right? Uh, and and about twenty percent of that is indexed or passively managed against the MSCI indices. So with that huge amount of money that is basically trading hands every single day on the basis of, of the indices that we create, we, you know, we better be right. <laughs> we better be accurate about the, about the measurement of these things. Otherwise, you know, there will be enormous you know, implications uh, of gains or losses you know, for our clients. So therefore, the MSCI brand stands as extremely high quality, extremely tedious attention to detail, uh, and and of course innovation in terms of the new things. But uh, but that's the, the, so those are the the drivers of our business is creating the standard, continuously innovating, you know, in order to create new standards and highly reliable and accurate indices because the amounts of money that are uh, attached to this institution are enormous in the world. That's great. Yeah, you, uh, and Henry, maybe that's a good, maybe that's a little bit of a good segue, because you mentioned, uh, obviously, we've spent a lot of time talking about things like Acqui, which are important, but you've also mentioned, obviously, a big growth area for the business is around, I think, what you've been calling the investment thesis-related uh, indexes, the non-market market cap uh, indices. Um, ESG, obviously, as you know, has become an incredibly important topic, uh, you know, within the asset allocator world, as well as obviously within the kind of manager universe. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about kind of number one, what what are you hearing from clients around that? What are you trying to do to help, you know, facilitate whatever types of investment objectives, uh, you know, asset allocators may have around ESG and uh, just a little bit about your strategy there. 
So, so let me lump together ESG and, and climate. Uh, obviously, climate, uh, the effect of climate in companies and in portfolios is going to be huge. And, and that's part of ESG, but it's also its own independent uh, variable. But let me let me initially sort of lump them together a bit, uh, and then we can separate them uh, uh, later. Uh, so so basically, the world is is shrinking rapidly, uh, becoming much more integrated, much more interconnected. You know, information flows you know very rapidly around the world, and therefore. You know, we we live in a highly interdependent world. Uh, and what that means is that as we get more and more people in countries of you know, different backgrounds and religions and all of that, we all have to live together. We all have to have equal opportunity to people, etc. Is is it's just the nature of, of the process. And therefore, ESG is not a fad. ESG is a representation of what's happening in society and in the world, which is you gotta have the institutions of capitalism, uh, which I would say that corp companies, you know, are are the biggest institutions of capitalism because that's where the employment is, that's where economic growth, you know, comes from, you know, by companies investing and creating new products, new services, and the like. So we need to make sure those companies, especially publicly listed companies have the right governance uh, structure, that those companies are, 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 are not, uh, that those companies are treating the multicultural societies that we live in, you know, properly so that they're not discriminating against, you know, underrepresented minorities, that they're incorporating women into the workforce. You know, they are representative of their societies because they need to attract the best talent possible. And if you create a company that has a hostile environment to women or to people, you know, that is not going to be good for business. So that's the social part. And then the environmental part is in this interconnected, interdependent world, you know, you can't be polluting a river and getting away with it. You know, in the past, you could get away with it because information was in the local paper, in print. But now there is a YouTube that can circulate all over the world in which people you know, look at it and, and societies become very intolerant of, of, of the pollution or, or, the, uh, or, or the externalities, you know, that companies create. So, so I, I view ESG as part of free markets, as part of capitalism, not some socialist idea, not some, you know, you know, you know NGO idea and, and anything like that is, is the next evolution. And what it is, is like we, all, we started in Economics 101, is that markets function properly when they incorporate all information into prices and, and to the allocation of capital. And we know that you know, capitalism produces externalities that sometimes are not understood and they're not priced into, uh, into assets and into, into capital allocation. And what is going on with ESG is the, the uh, attempt to incorporate and internalize into the pricing of assets and into the allocation of capital, all these issues of governance, all these issues of social, social issues, all these environmental problems, including you know, climate and the like. So uh, you know, that it is more and more rele relevant into, in a highly integrated, interconnected world. And we know that societies have become very unforgiving to companies 
that that are not addressing these issues, uh, be, you know, in terms of governance, for sure, social issues like we have seen in America in the last 18 months. And, and now, you know, the common crisis on climate. So I think that's what is happening. And therefore, when you're building a portfolio, whether it's a private, you know, portfolio, venture capital, you know, early stage firms or late stage firm or growth equity or publicly traded companies, you know, if you do not really focus on these issues that are, you know, uh, they're, they're like a, a, another dimension of understanding companies, not just a financial dimension, not just a business operating dimension, but all this dimension, you're going to do it at your own peril because when somebody's going to take that company public, you know, and they have an issue, uh, it's not going to go well and the like. So I think that that is what's happening in, the, in, in, in this ESG world and it's spreading very fast. The U.S. is a lagger in all of this. You know, but I think, uh, you know, it's coming, you know, rapidly in the U.S. as well as it's going on in the rest of the world. Well, actually, on that, I mean, the, the SEC has made it clear that an ESG disclosure framework is coming. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, well, well th- first of all, is there is a role for governments to play, you know, in all of this, uh, for sure. Uh, they're the the cops, right? They they're the ones that police markets, that police disclosure, and and they can establish rules about all of this. I hope, and this is what MSCI is working really hard on, is that um, it is uh, as they say, as they will say at Hoover, which is where I'm a trustee of, is I will hope that not every problem in society needs a government solution, right? That the private sector among ourselves can address these issues uh, and tackle them, you know, rather than the government come in and interfering and, you know, rewriting the rules and which many of them are extremely well-intentioned, but we know that over time they atrophy and and there's some side effects associated with them. Uh, But, you know, but there is a role to play for governments in creating the right disclosures about this, the right uh, reporting, particularly in publicly traded companies, you know, and the like. And uh, we're pushing a lot of our 9,000, we have about 9,000 investment institutional clients in some 90 countries, you know, in the world. We're pushing them pretty hard to uh, to address these issues because, first of all, it's about protection of their portfolios, uh, of the risk uh, embedded in all of this, but also is enormous opportunities uh, that are coming for, for the good companies that, that can be managed very well, that can, you know, uh, and the like. So, uh, so that there is a role for both, you know, hopefully more for the private sector rather than, you know, a government solution to everything, right? Henry, isn't, uh, isn't one of the complexities of this issue is that, you know, the term ESG means very different things to very different people? So you've got, you know, you mentioned climate, for example, and, and I'd love to come back to that. But you've got climate, obviously, you know, as you've seen, particularly in the U.S., diversity and inclusion obviously has become an important priority for many asset allocators. Um, how do you, you know, sitting where you sit, which is you're trying to, I think, lead lead uh, in this area and also be able to create, I guess, investable frameworks and, and uh, indices for people to measure performance against how do you think about defining something that has such a very different and amorphous view for so many people in the asset allocated world? You know, that's a great question, Scott, because, you know, we are the largest ESG uh, uh, rating uh, agency in the world. We currently rate about 20,000 issuers, some 8,000 companies that issue equity in the public markets. 
and uh, and some 12,000 bond issuers that don't have equity and counting, counting pretty uh, significantly. And we're, we, we, we uh, are, are working on a plan to start uh, doing this for private companies as well, mostly uh, kind of GP on uh, companies that uh, in which the GP you know needs to make sure that you know, all these things are are appropriately done in their companies. So when they sell them, either in the public markets or in the private markets, you know they uh, they, they they do well. So we're, we're very focused on, on all of this. The issue we get compared to credit rating agencies quite often, uh, and my answer to that is it's it's a it's a completely different thing, you know. When you're when you are analyzing the credit worthiness of, of a company, it's about how much leverage they have versus their cash flows versus the uh, you know the stability of their cash flows and things like that. Is I won't call it unidimensional, but it is close to that, right? When you're analyzing ESG, it's a it's a multifaceted number of of, of issues. The first thing you gotta do is to say what is material. To that company versus another company. So, what is material to a mining company in Australia is going to be very different to what is material to a high tech company in Silicon Valley, right? A high tech company in Silicon Valley is going to be about the social issues, about talent development, about you know uh, attracting the best and the brightest, and so on and so forth. A mining company will be about environmental issues. So, you got to start with what is material. Uh, and 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 what is material is very different that uh, to like a credit rating agency, right? And the second thing is what is material can be can be multifaceted. It could be you know ten factors that are material, you know, to a particular company. And then how you weigh the uh, how you how you put weights on the materiality of each one of those factors, you know. So when you have different rating entities. You know they are. They may have differences of views as to what is material. They might have differences of views as to how they weigh the different factors, you know, in materiality, and therefore they may come up with different ratings of the company. Uh, another major, you know, difference is that so, sometimes, let's say, you have an oil and gas company, and the oil and gas company had a huge accident that took place five years ago. So, how much look back versus look forward do you do? So we have low ratings of certain oil and gas companies because three, five years ago, they had a major accident. You know, number of people got killed and uh, we haven't yet seen, you know, enough maturity of the company to ensure that that's not going to happen again. Right. Uh, and therefore, they get a low rating. You know, those companies tell, tell you, no, we learn our lesson. We uh, do well. So you will see differences in ratings, whether somebody takes a five year look back or a two-year look back, or not a look back at all. So again, these are very different, multifaceted, multivariable, you know, uh, things to look at that uh, that you know a lot of people don't understand. The, the other point that I would add is there is a lot of media reports on uh, on, on funds, you know, like an uh, an ETF fund or a mutual fund or whatever uh, that is that is selling itself as an ESG fund. And they, you know, people go look and they find companies that are not great ESG companies. What people tend to miss is that you know there is a wide spectrum of of uh, risk and return. A lot of these you know funds 
are trying to uh, to do to be focused on ESG, but to do it within certain tracking error, uh, meaning certain deviation of the returns they're willing to accept. So if you are willing to accept any deviation of return, you're going to be as pure play as possible on ESG. But if you say, I don't want to underperform the market by, the, by more than 100 basis points or 200 basis points, that's going to constrain, but I still want to do ESG, that's going to constrain you on how much weight do you put on the good companies and how much weight you take away or eliminate you know, the bad companies. So there is a lot of confusion going on about that because a lot of these funds are trying to uh, to, to to make sure they have they, they don't simply go extremely pure ESG, but they have certain amount of risk and return parameters that they don't want to go beyond. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, right? And uh, you know, for people who follow this. If you look at ESG fund inflows, particularly last year in the wake of certainly uh, COVID, but also a lot of the Black Lives Matter uh, issues, uh, there was very, very significant retail inflows into those. And, and you're right. I think a lot of people have asked questions about just because you put ESG in your name, does that actually, you know, what does that actually mean? And how does an informed investor know about that? So it seems like maybe there's a big financial opportunity and business opportunity for you as kind of you know, MSCI to think about bringing some order to that market. Yeah, we, we definitely are, are doing a great deal about that, and it's obviously about the disclosures. And and by the way, you know, at MSCI, with respect to ESG and climate, uh, we 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 work across the whole board, right? So we go from uh, screening, uh, meaning somebody comes to us and say a pension fund or an endowment, and said, uh, I, I want to make sure my portfolio doesn't have a lot of companies that do this and do that. So can you help me identify those companies among the 20,000 that you follow so that I can exclude them? That's called screening. The, the second thing is you know, the, that I mentioned, the ratings. You know, we, we create ratings in individual companies and bond issuers and sovereign bond issuers and municipalities and all that. The third kind of leg is we create indices out of uh, our understanding of, of companies and our understanding of their ratings. So we reweight, you know, that. The other business is we are now incorporating ESG as a, as a risk factor, a market risk factor in, uh, in a lot of our, uh, you know, risk modeling, you know, risk management. About a third of MSCI, a little more than a third of MSCI is about risk management tools for the global investment industry. So, the question becomes is, what is my risk for, from climate? You know, what is my risk from ESG? So we're incorporating them into our risk model. So, so you know, what we do goes beyond indices is, is a whole, and we do this in equities, we do this in fixed income, in public fixed income, and, and now we're, we're, we're branching into private equity and, and private credit. So that, that's probably a good segue into what other assets get indexed. I mean, it's really amazing just seeing the growth of passive indexing in general. Like, like Jack Bogle was actually right. And you see this happening for more and more asset classes. And you know, here from a venture lens, we see more and more fintech companies seeking to democratize new asset classes as well. And kind of the way, the way that I've always thought about this is as a new asset class emerges, you know, first you kind of get alpha for showing up. 
then you get alpha for picking right. And then eventually there's an efficient market. There's no alpha. There's only potentially beta. And that's where indexing is very relevant. Um, so, you know, it's everything from crypto to real estate to others. But how do you think about other asset classes? Because obviously this started off, I mean, MSCI started off with the realm of investable public securities. Yeah, so, so we at MSCI have built what I would call the MSCI of the public asset classes. And we're now extremely focused on building the MSCI of the private asset classes of, or the MSCI of private capital. And uh, it, it, it starts with uh, two, two uh, important uh, data points, right? You know, one is an understanding of the investment. So if it's a credit, a private credit, is what are the terms and conditions of that credit? Uh, if it's a private company, you know, what does that company do? What are the financials? What are their market positions and all that? So understanding of the investment. But then secondly, you also need some kind of price on that investment. Uh, you know, either in the case of real estate it will be an appraisal. In the, in the case of uh, private equity it will be a mark uh, by, uh, by the manager. But as you know, those are not perfect. So, uh, so we, we already have access between MSCI and uh, an investment that we made in a, a large investment that we made in a company called Burgess. We now have access to over $10 trillion worth of private asset uh, databases uh, that have, uh, you know, clearly the understanding of the investment and, uh, and, and any kind of marks or any kind of evaluated prices or any kind of uh, appraisals on that. So one of the things that we're launching into is the creation of model prices. So, you know, the same way that in fixed income, you know, uh, particularly in fixed income indices, I don't know if most people know this, but, you know, on, on a fixed income index, in every single day, only about 2 to 3% of the, of the bonds trade that you get an actual transacted price. The other 97, 98% of the bonds that are in an index are evaluated prices you know, that are derived from, you know, the transacted prices plus a matrix of variables. So can we create model prices for private credit? Can we create model prices for, uh, you know, uh, private real estate or model prices for, uh, you know, private equity? So we're, we're in that trajectory. So anyhow, once you have the understanding of the investment and, the, uh, and, and some kind of price on the investment, then you can build what the MSCI is very good at, which is you build indices, you build risk models, performance attribution models, asset allocation models, cash flow models, liquidity models, and the like for the private assets. So we are already working on the creation of, uh, we already have private core real estate, private core real estate indices that, that are being used extensively in the marketplace. Uh, we're going to be working on, uh, on opportunistic uh, real estate, which is similar to, uh, to private equity investing. And, uh, and uh, we're going to work next on private credit, uh, uh, which is, uh, as you know, between you know, equity and fixed income, those are very large asset classes and, uh, and the like. So, so in order to create indices, now the indices are going to be used differently than in the public asset class. It's going to be hard to do index investing or, or passive investing because you cannot you know, transact on the assets on the underlying assets like you would do in, a, in the public markets, but they will be measurements of markets to understand what your portfolio did relative to, uh, to the whole universe of, uh, of potential investments. 
and over time you can steer you know that the other thing is performance attribution is going to be very important a lot of people may say i did really well in my core real estate you know investments around the world central city office buildings and the like and he said well you may do, have done well at four percent return but the market did eight percent return right you know so uh, you left a lot of money on the table by not being in the right places or vice versa right so we are we're, we're looking to create performance attribution analysis and then of course risk because you know a lot of uh, you know, institutional investors asset allocators want to compare a unit of risk in private equity or private credit or real estate to a unit of risk in the public equity or the public bond markets uh, in order to do asset allocation uh, and therefore uh, MSCI is modeling very heavily those units of risk in a way that become a little more homogeneous and a little more sort of uh, you know uh, transacted or a little more like you know transparent than than has existed before. So we we have a lot of work uh, and it's also very exciting because we believe uh, last point here that we we believe that the the allocations to the private asset classes by global uh, asset allocators. We're, we'll, are going to double in the next, you know, 10 or so years. And uh, uh, and so there is a massive amount of money that will continue to come into this industry. Definitely. Have, have you thought about crypto at all? Has that, has that crossed the radar? Screen? Yes, uh, crypto, you know, for sure. We, there are two areas that we're focused on in, on digital currencies. Uh you know, the first area clearly, uh, which has an impact on uh, on what we do day to day, is the uh, is is uh, the central bank digital currencies. Obviously, China is at the forefront uh, of this effort, uh, but uh, but you know, the European you know, Central Bank and the Fed are already working, you know, pretty hard to see what uh, what that could happen. So it's still early days, and then there is uh, all forms of uh, cryptocurrencies. Those are those are not. You know, people think of them as currencies, uh, and uh, you know, uh, we we tend not to think of them as currencies themselves, like you would think of a dollar or a euro or a yen or a renminbi. You know, we think of them more like a financial asset, uh, uh, similar to the way you would think, or, or some kind of asset similar you you wait you would think of gold, for example, or silver. Or the like, you know. So there may be the new gold and new silver in the world, uh, in which you know, obviously they're they're used for transactions, just like gold used to be used for transactions. Silver used to be used for transactions, you know, back uh, back in the days, uh, you know, before the uh, the seventies, and uh, and therefore, uh, you know, we we are uh, we, we have a partnership that uh, that we have developed with a, a group of real experts on uh, on everything having to do with crypto assets and digital assets and we'll be coming out with uh, some uh, crypto uh, you know indices uh, in the near future that's uh, that's uh, that's very exciting I'm glad to hear that yeah and by the way you know crypto is is kind of the tip of the iceberg where most people you know uh, everyone is focused on the crypto part you know, but what people should be focusing is on blockchain and the implications of blockchain to uh, to whole swaths of industries around the world. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a that's a really good point. And uh, as you know, you know, we have a, we have a whole team who does a lot of investing, you know, on that thesis. So it's a, we we do believe it's a really important area. One um, 
One, one question uh, kind of, you know, I had to, particularly as you think about these private market indices now that you're looking at is uh, why not why not be a principal investor if you're already doing all the work to gather the data and you kind of, you know, you understand all these markets in an incredible way. Have you ever thought about or is there a scenario in which in, instead of, you know, purely being in the index business that you also could be a principal investor? Yeah, so you uh, you definitely uh, mentioned that uh, before we came on the call as to why, uh, at what point did we make some of these decisions? Um, and uh, we had a very, uh, very stark uh, kind of uh, dilemma, right, back in the, in the late 90s, uh, way before we went public. Uh, you know, uh, we were sitting inside Morgan Stanley, Morgan Stanley, was the creator of uh, a variety of different types of uh, indexed uh, funds. Uh, the precursor was a product called Opals that traded in Europe. And then uh, Morgan Stanley and, and us created something called Webs, which is the precursors of the iShares, you know, for international markets. So, you know, and the, and the, the you know, the, the decision was, should we combine the precursor to, of iShares with the MSCI uh, indices into one kind of one company, right? And uh, uh, and uh, we we eventually decided that that you know that a big part of uh, the growth of MSCI was to be a neutral provider of tools to the global investment industry uh, uh, on an equal footing, you know, basis on a level playing field basis. And that, you know, picking size with one and, you know, being competing with our clients, basically, you know, right. directly was going to handicap the growth. That doesn't mean that those are not great opportunities. Obviously, you know, iShares became, you know, a, a huge part of BlackRock uh, and, and great investment opportunity. But we felt that they, uh, they really didn't belong under one roof. And therefore, you needed to uh, make a choice as to whether you went into the principal route or you went into the agency, meaning the provider of tools route. So, so we have followed that philosophy at MSCI. We uh, we we don't want to be investment advisors. We don't want to be you know money managers. We don't want to be broker dealers. We don't want to be an exchange. That was another discussion we had early on in our life. Should we buy an exchange? You know to uh, to you know going back to the derivative products that I was mentioning. It was tough going at the beginning, getting exchanges interested in launching MSCI uh, the futures and options. So we said, why don't we buy an exchange and get 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 the thing done, <laughs> you know, and we do it ourselves. Uh, but again, you know, so so I think that will remain. You know, we believe that uh, that being uh, being this neutral provider, uh, think tank driven, kind of research driven uh, company into all forms of tools for the global investment industry uh, is going to bode well for us. Uh, and uh, the minute we start competing with clients, then other clients will not want to you know, do, do business with us. So uh, that's, the, uh, th that's the line, that the strategic line that we have taken. Uh, not to say that, you know, that, uh, that, that being a principal investor in a, in a lot of these other areas is not fantastic. You know, it could be very fantastic. But but uh, but it, it is hard to mix and match it, um, you know, in a way. And and the last thing that I will say is like you know, you know, everyone you know, says Henry, you created this company, you know, twenty five years ago now. Uh, is 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 you know, at the time it had almost zero value. You know, I guess we could have sold 
the product, the cost center product line for a few million dollars, and now is a forty billion dollar market cap company. What I can tell you is that uh, based on you know a lot of the work that we're doing, based on what clients want from us, ba- based on the win in our back on a variety of areas, we're we're only getting started. You know, we're we're on the ground floor. The the think about this: the investment industry attracts. First of all, the investment industry, broadly defined, is one of the most important industries in a society because it channels savings into investments that create economic growth and prosperity. Without that, there won't be economic growth and prosperity. And then the second part is that the investment industry, therefore, attracts top quartile smart people in any society anywhere in the world. Uh, And when those people show up, the tools of the trade on a lot of what they do in terms of models and data and technology are at best late 20th century. So if we ourselves can get all of that to be in the 21st century, that will create enormous value for uh, for our shareholders. Henry, this is fantastic. Yeah, that seems to be a great high note to end on. What do you think, Alex? <laughs> I think I think so, because it's, it's the top of the hour. So, so Henry, thank you so much for your time, and I, I hope everybody in the room enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much for having me, and I hope it was helpful in illuminating some of the things that are happening in our space. Thank you, Henry. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.